welcome to this month's science fiction double feature. This month, we're examining memories, first with author of Book of M. Peng Shepard, and then with Professor Michael Anderson from the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit from Cambridge University. is easily one of my favourite books this year. It's just so wonderfully strange and beautifully written. It's Peng Shepard's first published work and has already won the 2019 Newcomb Institute for Literary Arts Award for debut speculative fiction. But before I forget to get the show started, here's Peng telling us a little bit more about Book of M. It's a little bit of post-apocalyptic story, kind of a little bit of fantasy, um, but it is set in the near future and um, it is about a mysterious phenomenon that is causing people's shadows to disappear all over the world. Uh, And if you lose your shadow, you also lose your memory. But these shadowless people realize now that as they are forgetting things, they're somehow able to kind of change the world now through that forgetting and alter reality because they've got this this new um, kind of this strange power that they don't understand. Uh, And the story itself follows a husband and wife named Orion Max who have kind of survived so far for about two years by just hiding in this abandoned hotel deep in the woods in uh, Arlington, Virginia, until uh, right at the beginning of the novel, Max's shadow also disappears, and they have to decide if they're going to keep hiding or they're going to go out into this you know, very new, very different, dangerous world, uh, what it's become, in the hopes of maybe uh, finding a way to save her. It's such a... A fascinating idea because you can't imagine everyone just losing their memories. So where did where did that idea come from? Like where did the inspiration or the, the kind of impetus for the book come from? Um, it's I I don't know if it was any kind of like just deliberate decision that I made that I you know, um, but it was just as I was I started with the shadows because I thought it would be a really kind of spooky, eerie image if you had a bunch of people standing around and then there was this one person in the middle of them that didn't have a shadow. It would look really different and kind of really strange and unsettling in a really subtle way, you know? And then I just started thinking about what are the things that could happen, I guess, if you lost your shadow, because that isn't a thing, you know, that can happen to you right now um, in our current world. But if it did, what what else might you lose or what you might gain? And it seemed like you know, if part of you was got a little bit unanchored to the real world that we know like that, what are the other sort of things that anchor you here to this world that might also kind of start to unravel? And memory seemed like they made sense in that kind of way. And I read from some other interviews that uh, you did some research or you started to kind of collect bits of research. So Zero Shadow Day was important. Um, and also that it won't make any sense to podcast readers, but like the whole thing with the elephants. Yes, yes. So were you actively seeking out these things or were you just kind of collecting them as you go? Or did you have an idea of like that, how you would use them or were just looking for stuff that would make the story good? Uh, really in the beginning, I was just kind of, I was just collecting anything that seemed like it might be related. And then that research sort of informed me about where the story was going. So like, for example, Zero Shadow Day was the first thing I found, which is, I'm sure I've mentioned the other interviews. It's a it's an actual day that our real world experiences every year, 
where on that day, in only very specific countries, people's shadows do disappear for just a few seconds, uh, but then they come back and everything's fine. But when I found that, because that happens pretty much only in India, that's what led me to set part of the book in India. Um, and then because part of the book was in India, I got onto the elephant subject because elephants are a huge part um, of the culture there. And then, of course, as everybody knows, elephants have really, really good and very, very different kinds of memories um, and, and memory capacities from humans. Um, and, you know, just kind of the elephant part is uh, the research was really interesting. And, I, you know, it just I knew it was going to get in there somehow. The way I kind of usually describe Book of M uh, when I'm recommending it to people is that it's like very bonkers uh, because it's it's so fantastical and it kind of ramps up the kind of fantastic nature of it as it goes along. So it's just like very difficult to explain without um, completely spoiling everything. But did you think of anything that was just too far fetched for the book, even it is even though the, the kind of fantastical elements get so fantastic near the end? Oh, let me think. Um, well, actually, so I don't think it was too uh, it was too fantastical for the book because it does occur, I think, still once or twice in the book. But there are a few instances where some of the shadowless people forget that animals can't talk, and so that so those animals become able to talk and they end up having really short conversations with them. But that used to be uh, like a, a much bigger part of the story, and there were like all these animals, and I think there was one um, at one point that kind of traveled with some of the groups. Uh, and it was really fun, but it was kind of, it, it, you know, that's not the point of the story. And it was taking over um, in way too major of a way just because it was so fun. So a lot of those animals had to go and I missed them. <laughs> so you've mentioned Max and Ori, um, but there's quite a few people that you meet throughout the book of them. Uh, but they all feel like they could be real people. So how do you go about keeping all of these kind of characters unique when you have this ensemble cast? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I, um, they felt very real to me too, kind of in a way like I'd almost met them, not like I was really creating and developing any of them, which I guess maybe means that they, they were all supposed to be there because there were a few that didn't make it into the book that I was really struggling to figure out who they were, or how they fit in. Um, so maybe that was the difference for me is the ones that are there felt really necessary to be there. And they kind of all have, you know, their own special thing. Like, some don't have shadows, some do, uh, some are embracing their magic, some are not embracing their magic, some have really specific skills that can really help the group in times of danger. So yeah, maybe I would say if the, the story just felt like it really needed those people at different points, uh, as opposed to some of the others that, that fell away. I was very amused to read that uh, lots of people thought you based Max on yourself, but you didn't. Some other authors have interviewed like they love certain characters when they're writing and have to kind of make sure they just don't constantly write about them. Um, did you have any characters that you love more than others or were any kind of easier to write than others? Um, actually, so, uh, some of my favorite characters in the whole story are not the point of view characters, which made it a little bit easy to not go overboard with them because they weren't the point of view characters. Uh, I don't think I did that on purpose, but it was kind of a handy tool to keep me in check. Um, but some of my, I, I really love Ursula and I really love Zachary, who are two, um, you know, minor characters that, uh, that you see them through Max's eyes and a little bit through Ori's, but you don't get to hear from them. And I think that keeps them from, to, from taking everything over because I really enjoyed writing both of them. So the other thing that I really liked was like 
the pacing. So you start, you know, start in this kind of weird situation where people are losing their shadows, but it's a very manageable story. There's Max and Ori together in this hotel. But then it kind of ramps up over time. Uh, did you have an idea how that would work? Uh, or did the kind of the, the plot and how the ultimate resolution worked out drive how you structured the book? Uh, no, I ended up, I didn't realize the book was going to kind of end up in the structure that it did at all. When I was starting, I thought that it was going to be this really kind of tight, short, narrow domestic drama about just Orion Max in this hotel, and they were never going to leave it. And it was going to be all just about their marriage, kind of. <laughs> and, and really nothing. Yeah. So, and, you know, the book's like super long. It goes multiple continents. And um, so it, it really got away from me. Um, but I think as I was trying to write that version of the book, uh, I, I just couldn't, I think, because, you know, it was very wrong for the story. The story is really out there and when they go out there and what they find and, and how the world has changed. So uh, I just... For the first draft, I really felt like I was just along for the ride and I had no idea where we were going. I think it's similar for the kind of escalation of the kind of fantastical elements. I guess like uh, there are certain points where it feels like the, the, the kind of fantastical elements just like go up a notch. Did you have an idea or is that just my interpretation of, of how I read it? Um, no, I think that's how, well, because that's also how it's happening for the characters as they experience where um, you know, as more and more people keep forgetting things or become better at, at doing their magic, kind of the intensity of everything jump, you know, does jump up a notch. Um, and especially when they try, when they figure out that they can do things together to make an even more intense reaction, that drives everything up even further. But, but I sort of like the way that it, it happens that way now because the characters are sort of discovering most of this magic at the same time the reader is too. And so it surprises them often just as much as it surprises the reader when something really, really different happens or much bigger, you know? It feels like you must have lived in some of the places where the action took place because you have very detailed imaginings of, I think it was Washington especially, were you doing this via Google Maps? or I, I, I love when things are geographically accurate, <laughs> especially in films. I don't know why. It's just like my brain doesn't like geographical inaccuracies. But why do why did you pick the settings and like did you know them well? I did know the Washington DC area really well. I did live there for two years. Um, and I think that's why I set the beginning of the book there because, especially because when you're starting to write a story, you don't know anything else about the story. You know, you're kind of just meeting your characters and you don't know where they might go or what they might want. And so I thought, okay, well, if I at least just put it in my neighborhood, I'll at least know, you know, the streets they're on. And it really did help. I like it. And it kind of helped me to figure out that beginning part the, the, well, I, I think I guess I can say this without spoiling anything. Part, most of the ending part of the book, um, or kind of the la the later portion of the book, takes place near in New Orleans, and that is a city I had not been to actually until I finished the book. Yeah, it was neat in kind of the reverse way because I got to go to the city that I had been imagining and looking at in pictures, where I had set really really important portions of the story, um, but hadn't yeah yet seen in person. So what what was the hardest bit to write about the book? I think different people str struggle with like different bits, like the beginning or revising or whatever. But what did you find the most difficult? Oh, um, it was actually one of the four point of view characters, the one who um, I call the amnesiac. He was really, really difficult because it wasn't until really kind of the last 
right at the end of you know my writing of it that I really figured out exactly who he was. And I guess I can't really say, I can't say exactly who he is without spoiling it. But um, in earlier versions, I, he had more normal jobs. Like at one point he was a psychiatrist in the city trying to help people in that way. And then in a, uh, you know, a second version, he was, uh, I think he was like their resource manager. And so he was like obsessed with their inventory for survival. And then in another version, he was a mayor of, he was the mayor of the city, or I guess uh, the president, because there's probably not a president anymore in, you know, in this version of the world. It felt like part of him, but not all of him. And I couldn't figure out exactly who he was until really, really late uh, in the draft when the the rest of the kind of the power that he has clicked and, and exactly who he is uh, until I figured that out. I don't like a lot of like post-apocalyptic type fiction because it seems like very dreary <laughs> and like super depressing. And even though this has that kind of feel to it, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel that way. I guess there's like more hope. Did you want the story to have that hopeful bit? I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I think it's really important to, you know, you can have a really, really dark story as long as there's, you know, some like even uh, The Road, which is very, very dark and on kind of a hopeful note. Uh, and also there's, there's, I don't think often post-apocalyptic is combined with magic or fantasy. Uh, it definitely is sometimes, but I think of them as very different things, just the straight post-apocalyptic and the post-apocalyptic with some surreal stuff. And I really wanted to write one where there was a lot of surreal, weird stuff going on. This is your first novel. Uh, so how do you go about publishing your first novel? So my path uh, was just pr- pretty traditional. You know, I just I wrote the thing. I revised it until it was the best that I thought it could be. You know, and I, I needed somebody else really knowledgeable and experienced kind of to take it to its final, final level. So then I uh, just researched and queried agents, got an agent, uh, and then she was responsible for pitching it to publishing houses for me. That seems very straightforward. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's. I think it might have been different a couple, even a couple of years ago, but lately there's just, you know, so much good information on the internet. You just you can just Google, like, how do you publish your book? And it gives you, you know, tips on, like, how to write your query letter. And these agents love this kind of stuff. And that agent has represented that before. And, you know, and so it's maybe I just went down a research rabbit hole about publishing, too. But I it's so, you know, scary and it feels like so one in a million that it to me, I felt like the more research I had or just the better I understood the process the easier it was going to be for me, which is probably, you know, probably not true at all. Like it's just, if your book is clicking or not clicking with agents and, and editors, but the, the research was like a defense mechanism, I guess. I really love the cover, at least my edition. It's the kind of like pink and bluey purple one. Did you have any like control over that? Or did you just like luck out with a lovely illustrated design? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love the UK cover too. Um, Actually, we went back and forth a lot more. I don't know if you've seen the U.S. cover. Um, it's like a kind of like a night sky in a forest and there's an RV. Um, so that one we went back and forth on a lot more. That was not what it looked like uh, in the beginning. But the U.K. one actually looked just like that. The colors were just different when it came the first time. And uh, we were mostly like, yep, that's beautiful. Maybe let's just make it, you know, darker, like blue, but it's perfect. <laughs> 
this is your first novel, but are you generally like a sci-fi fantasy fan? Uh, or is this, did your romance novel just kind of spiral out of control? <laughs> um, no, no, I'm definitely a science fiction and fantasy fan. Um, and I, everything I've, you know, because it's not the first novel I've ever tried to write. It's just the first one that um, I got finished. But everything I've ever written and I think will continue to write has been and is going to be kind of equally uh, like weird or magical or just something something a little unreal about it. And uh, the last question I always ask uh, is, what books would you recommend to people to read, sci-fi fantasy-wise or anything really, uh, especially stuff that you might be reading now? I have to I have to remember what's like actually out yet and what's not. I keep seeing things for Gideon the Ninth, and it's not out till September. Right? Yeah, that's the yeah. Oh, I'm sure too. For, and I so want to read it. I know. Yeah, it keeps popping up in my Twitter feed, and that cover is just so cool looking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, if people are into really into post-apocalyptic fantasy, there's a trilogy which is completed. It's I'm just amazing. It's award-winning. The trilogy is called The Broken Earth, I think. It's by N.K. Jemisin, and it's about um, some people who are born with the ability to like cause or prevent earthquakes. That's their magical power. And all of these earthquakes is what is tearing the world apart on like an apocalyptic level because there are so many and they're so intense. And it's really it's fascinating. The, the structure is also just mind-blowing. Um, I love books with good structures. So that that one is definitely... That is so wonderful. The obvious candidate for a companion interview for Book of M was someone who understands memory. And luckily, Michael Anderson from Cambridge University, a program leader for the Memory and Perception Group from the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit, was miraculously happy to talk to me. So, what do they get up to at a Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit? Here's Michael explaining just that. Uh, what kind of work do we do? We, f we study motivated forgetting. We study how people forget the things they'd rather not remember uh, and how that happens in the brain. What kind of experiments do you do to find out motivating forgetting? I think the, you know, the, the, the trick is to figure out how to study it scientifically because motivated forgetting seems like such a abstract concept. How, how could that possibly happen? And how could you operationalize that in a way that you can actually get down and study it scientifically? And the way that we think about it is that forgetting it, the, the key situation that drives motivated forgetting is a lot like something that we do every day, which is to stop ourselves. So uh, if you think about reaching for a hot pot on the stove, you have the ability to, when new information arises, to, to stop yourself physically, to you know, cancel that command to move your arm and grasp the pot, for example. And so how is it that we control ourselves? What is it that does the stopping? And so we thought that if you know, nature has seen fit to uh, you know, evolve within us uh, the capacity to stop a physical action, it might have similarly evolved the capacity to stop internal actions like, for example, memory retrieval. And memory retrieval is an internal action. So, it's a, so you get a reminder in the world. Uh, which may be related to something that you have stored in memory, and you, that reminder will tend to elicit a reminding. It'll it'll bring back memory is really good good that way, right? Um, uh, so it tends to say, hey, here are the things that you might be interested in at, at this given time, and that's pretty useful by and large, except when it's something really unpleasant because 
who wants that, right? Who wants to be reminded? So memory is being too efficient for your own good. So to study that, we put people in a situation where we give them reminders to things that we know that they know. And, um, you know, these could be simple artificial laboratory stimuli that we devise and we have them learn in the context of the laboratory, like pairs of pictures or pairs of words. But you could equally do it with, if you knew what the person's personal experiences are, you could also do it with reminders to things that you knew that they've experienced. And uh, so then we, set, we then we set them the situation of giving them the reminders. And sometimes we say, you know, like if the reminder is surrounded in green, we say, that's your signal that it's good to go ahead and retrieve the memory that goes with the reminder. And if the reminder is surrounded instead by a red box, then that's your signal to uh, not think about the memory that goes with that reminder. Whatever you do, don't allow it into consciousness. Look, look it right in the face, but nevertheless prevent the associated memory from coming into consciousness, which, you know, how would we know? How would we know? You know, if you were in this situation, how would I know if you're not thinking about the memory? And the answer is, from your behavior, we don't know. Uh, but what we can look at, we can look at a couple of things. We can look at later on, if we give you the reminders, and then we kind of turn the tables a little bit, and we say, hey, try to think about the memory that goes with this now. Uh, give, give it to us in as much detail as you can. We can measure how well people can do that as a result of having previously tried to suppress it multiple times or as a result of previously trying to retrieve it multiple times. Or we have a kind of a third category of things where they learned them originally, but then they didn't either suppress it or retrieve it. And those are kind of neutral uh, baseline items. And what you find is that when people consistently try to keep something out of consciousness – it actually harms their memory, not only relative to things that they think about a lot, but also relative to the things that they learned originally, but then didn't think about any more frequently in the interim. So keeping something at, at arm's length, pushing it out of mind, shuts down that memory and makes it harder to recall, even when you want to recall it later on, even when you give people money for, for the correct answers. And so uh, we can take that kind of procedure. Now, that's very concrete, right? That's what I've just described is a very specific thing that we can do to study how people intentionally control consciousness and to exclude a memory from awareness in a motivated way. And we can take that into the brain scanner, into the, into the fMRI scanner, and study people's brain mechanisms that, that, that they engage when they're uh, trying to, to stop the retrieval process. And, and that's pretty much what we've been doing. Uh, for I've been here in Cambridge for the last decade or so, and but I was doing this kind of work even prior to arriving here. And we know a great deal about how exactly that happens in the brain. And I can tell you as much as you like. Probably a slightly more broader question. I imagine, you know, we take memories for granted, I imagine, until the point where we lose them. Um, how much do we know about how memory works? Like, how are long-term memories formed? Like, what's the process? What are the, the actual mechanisms in the brain that make long-term memories? Oh, that's a really super good and very interesting question. What I just tell, I'll tell you and your listeners that um, memory is a really wonderful slice of neuroscience to be involved in, and it's wonderful because it can be studied at so many different levels of analysis. You can, and we know a lot about each of those levels. So, for example, I can study uh, memory at the behavioral level and kind of learn about the rules of memory. Like, how well do you remember something if you repeated it, if you spaced how often you repeated it, and like all kinds of things that you can study at that level. Uh, but then you can also study things at the brain systems level using neuroimaging. So, what 
parts of the brain light up when you um, encode something or retrieve something. But you can also study things at the um, level of brain circuits, at the level of cells, and at the level, even at the level of synapses and molecules. And there's really interesting, powerful work going on at all of those levels of analysis, not only in humans, but also in other species as well, mice and rats, and even, you know, uh, sea slugs and... <laughs> and zebrafish and things like that. So um, the, I, I can tell you that the most basic answer to your question uh, about how memories are formed in the brain is that memories are believed to be uh, encoded as changes in connect, connections between neurons. And so your, neuro, your brain is composed of a massive number of brain cells or called neurons, and they communicate with each other electrochemically. Uh, and so they send signals to each other. So when one neuron uh, kind of get, gets excited, it sends a signal that propagates uh, down its what's called an axon, and that then that has an impact on everything to which it's connected, which could be tens of thousands of of other neurons. And then they get excited too by the cumulative effects of all the things talking to them, and and so it's this pattern of excitation um, uh, that that is how information processing happens in the brain. And so the basic rule is there's a this is kind of coined um, many deca decades ago by uh, Hebb. Uh, he has this pithy saying: he says things that um, uh, fire together wire together. So I love that phrase because it pretty much summarizes it. So, to, so two neurons that are kind of activated at the at the same time, the ner the brain kind of has this rule of thumb that hey, you know, maybe I should strengthen the connection between those things a bit, and and so that's what it does. And and the, initially, the this is a very fleeting effect. It's a very a temporary change, but um, within a couple of quickly within a couple of hours, uh, the, the, that initial kind of firing together sets off a cascade of processes internal to, to the neurons that um, generate uh, structural changes in the linkage between the two of them. Protein synthesis happens and the, the neuron remodels itself a little bit and now they can talk to each other just a little bit better. I imagine everyone's had this in a pub quiz, uh, especially in the UK. We're big fans of our pub quizzes, as you know. How how do we lose all this information that like at one point in time must have been very strong and then twenty years later, why can't I remember all my high school lessons? <laughs> exactly, not just high school lessons. Like forgetting the names of friends, there's like terribly embarrassing when things like that happen, right? Or you know, forgetting meetings that you're supposed to go to. Or uh, oh, I had the best actually. I I actually forgot that I was supposed to give a lecture on forgetting. So you can answer this question on many levels of analysis, right? You can answer at the kind of level of cognitive rules, um, and you can ask, answer at the level of synapses and, you know, what's happening at, at the level um, of uh, actual physical substrates of memory. But let's talk about, I think, the, at the level of cognitive rules first. And forgetting was has been a subject of great interest in uh, experimental psychology. Actually, it's one of the oldest that people have been studying forgetting since 1900, basically. Um, and so, so we know broadly the kinds of factors that that lead to forgetting. Uh, one factor is um, interference, which is the tendency to learn other similar things. Um, either things that you so if you have a particular experience, you know every memory researcher's favorite example is is you know remembering where you parked in in the parking lot when you come out of the supermarket. And, and if you go to the supermarket all the time, 
you parked in many different spots. You know, and if you're not, if you come out of the supermarket, you may be initially confused about where you park. You may not even remember. And and part of the reason for that is because you have so many prior parking episodes uh, that are causing interference or competition in the process of retrieving what you need to remember. And uh, similarly, even if you do remember today where you parked in two weeks time, if you continue to park in that parking spot, you now no longer will remember where you parked previously. And just to illustrate the contrast, if I asked you what you had for dinner three weeks ago uh, in your apartment and, and and you'd say, um, no, I couldn't possibly remember that. I have no idea, right? But if I asked you if, if there was this one special occasion where you had dinner at a friend's house in Madrid uh, and it was over the holidays or something like this, you may, may remember every th- single thing that you ate and all, every aspect of that experience. And that's because that's a very special memory. It stands out. It's very distinctive. It's not similar to anything else. And and so and this is a powerful factor influencing memories is interference. Uh, so that's what I, one kind of explanation. But there, there are others as well. It's not the only force. And one thing that I've studied in particular is the active role that we play in, in inducing our own forgetting. So this is actually the specialty of my laboratory, which is that, that, that we are actually kind of the, the conspirators in our own forgetting. <laughs> uh, and this happens for a number of reasons. And so one reason is just the kind of the kind of situation that I just described where you come out of the parking lot and you think, where did I park? Where did I park? And you, you struggle for a minute and you, you have your, your memory being efficient like it is, tries to give you all these options about where it might be. And some of them are right and some of them are wrong and you have to kind of have to sort through it. And you eventually you figured out the right answer, but in the process you just, you know, you, have, you put up the mental hand and you shove away those wrong answers and say, no, those are not right. And that simple act of rejecting the inappropriate ones, the wrong answers, actually has an effect on memory. And uh, this is a phenomenon that I discovered 25 or 30 years ago now. It's called retrieval-induced forgetting. It's the very act of remembering something can cause you to forget other things. Uh, so it's really counterintuitive. So using your memory, it's kind of the opposite of what you, you think. Usually, uh, um, if you use it, you'll lose it. Or, or if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Here is, uh, if you use it, you'll lose it. <laughs> you'll, you'll lose other things anyway. And so the act of rejecting memories uh, shapes your memory. And you might think, well, why would it work that way? And um, the answer is that it's about efficiency. It's about cognitive economy. So your your brain is constantly – if we step back for a second and we ask, is it because my brain is full? Is it – you know, I just have no – I don't have enough room for all these memories, so I have to get rid of some of them. And and, I, and that this is probably not the reason. Uh, it's not that your brain is full. You're, you're having a, a massive storage capacity for experiences and stimuli. The real problem in the efficient use of memory is in the ability to get the things that you have stored, to retrieve the information. Uh, and that can be a massive problem when uh, you know your memory is trying to be efficient and deliver everything that's relevant. Well, there may be a, a ton of things that are irrelevant. And that, and sorting through all that and finding the right thing is a major problem in being fast and accurate because if you get the wrong thing, you can make mistakes. So what your your brain is doing is trying to 
optimize this, the accessibility of the memories that are most consistently relevant. So those are on the tip of your mind while dampening down those things that get in the way consistently. We've recently also shown that it happens in animals. So it's, a, it's an old uh, ability that mammals have. I think a lot of people think of, especially now with kind of computers, that people think of memory as like, it's a computer hard disk and wonder why we can't just like go through the file system and find the memory from 1985 or something. Um, is that a helpful way of thinking of our memory or is there a better way of kind of conceptualizing how our brain actually does stuff like that? Uh, it's not a helpful way of thinking about things at all. Actually, your, your brain is not like, a, I mean, it's like a computer in the sense that, you know, we believe that what you're doing is neural computation. But your brain is not like a hard drive. It's not like things are there and they're perfectly safe and static. Your, your memories are stored in wetware. They're stored in your neurons, right? And that's living tissue. And that living tissue is subject to, uh, you know, biological processes that regulate its activity. And, uh, and, so, and then there are also all these issues that I was mentioning before, which is that your brain is constantly trying to optimize what, remains accessible for it, that's most regularly used and so it 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 you know prioritizes some memory, memories that are quite useful and important over others that are less consistently useful even disruptive and so your your computer doesn't do that at least it doesn't do it yet although there are people interested in actually making computers behave more like human brains and, and maybe they should build forgetting into the system in some way. Given that this is the thing you study, what do you wish that people knew about memory or how it works in general, either to like kind of help them avoid getting Alzheimer's or, or as much as that as possible, or just generally remembering stuff? What's, what's the one thing you wish people would know? People, I, I guess I would say people's memories can be shaped by their own motivations. So this, this, the general subject of motivated forgetting fascinates me. And you know, people think, people wonder whether or not something that, like that really exists, but it really does exist. You know, what you remember about your life isn't just, you know, um, it, once you, you've, you encoded an experience originally, uh, initially, um, that's not the end of the story uh, in terms of the fate of that memory. The fate of that memory is dictated by, in part, by what you do with it afterwards. If it's a memory you like, what do you do? You reminisce. You reminisce with friends. You, you imagine. You talk about the time you were at camp together. You talk about the Christmas uh, uh, goose that you ate. You know, all kinds of things you like to think about. And then there are things that you don't like to reminisce about. And they, at best, suffer benign neglect. They are not rehearsed. But it's more than that. They, when when you're reminded of those things, you reject them, you expel them, and and so by doing so, that has an effect on memory. It, it, it shapes your memory so that initially, uh, you you know, if you initially the brain is uh, very biased to remember emotionally intense events, especially negative events. Uh, so, uh, and neuroscience has taught us a lot about why that is. But over time, you know, after five or ten years, people show a massive bias to remember the things that are positive at the expense of things that are more neutral. So we are the authors of our own autobiographies 
changing our memories as we, you know, attend to them or, to, or ignore them. And this happens for our personal failings as well. So uh, somebody, there's a really fascinating phenomenon where if you give people some negative feedback about something, people are very inclined to, um, to forget it. So, and I can think of one um, certain president that has this characteristic. <laughs> but, but no, but seriously, like in experiments, there's a, this phenomena of, of what they call mnemic neglect, where if you give people kind of, they, they take some kind of quiz and you get the computer does some analysis of it and, and it comes back with, you know, all these characteristics which are really good. I and mean, then there's this one thing that's not so good. And that most people would not like to have that characteristic, and and people remarkably don't remember that nearly as well. Uh, but if you give them the same information, but it's about somebody else, they remember it perfectly well. Oh man, I see how that much like might work in performance reviews at work as well. <laughs> it's like, of course, I was brilliant all year. <laughs> yeah, I guess that. So that that would be what I would say is that we, you know, what we remember of our lives isn't just about the objective occurrences. It's about how we interact with our memories for our emotional reasons and for our functional reasons. And so we're left with the autobiography that we author. And that's it for this week. Thanks to both Peng Shepard and Michael Anderson for giving me some time to discuss their work. There's links and more info about what they do in the show notes. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. And remember today. Let's make sure we're being great authors for the future of sci-fi. Thanks for listening. 